Welcome to Healing the Spirit, a space where we awaken our creativity, deepen our connections, and remember who we are through the lens of astrology, archetypes, and art making. I'm your host, Jonathan Coe. Hello everyone, welcome to Healing the Spirit. I am so excited for you to listen to this conversation today because I have a very special guest, Madison Nees, who is just an incredible, magical human and practitioner. And before I introduce you to Madison, I would just like to remind you that my course with Britton LaRue um, for learning astrology called Astrology as Praxis will start on September 10th, 2022, and registration will be from August 26th to 28th, which is the last weekend of August in 2022. And yeah, if you feel a resonance with my voice, with how I've been talking about astrology, about what it means to be human within this podcast, I think you will really love the experience of being in Astrology as Praxis and yeah, it seems like whenever Britton and I do a course together, we always um, magnetize really incredible human beings. So you may be one of them. And I want you to um, check out our course page, which will be in the show notes. Okay, so back to Madison. First, I want to introduce you to Madison by way of Madison's bio, which is just so heart-opening. And um, yeah, it's written in first person, so the my here really refers to Madison. Madison Nees is a human, counselor, artist, and guide. My practice focuses on the intersection of ecology, ritual, and somatics. I've worked in the addiction and trauma treatment industry since 2015. My own journey includes healing from substance abuse, anorexia nervosa, loss of culture, and self. When I began my journey, I didn't understand that the pull to somatics was a call of my ancestors. I was being pulled to heal all the things my mother could not and ultimately lost her life avoiding. I was being pulled to feel the things my grandmother had no language for. My body knew the language, however, and it spoke in illness, pains, aches, and rage. It also spoke the language of health, grief, and aloneness. During this process, I discovered gifts hidden beneath these repressed emotions. These gifts were the sensations. The gifts were the rivers of grief leading me home to myself. They were also the intuition and creativity of my lineage. I always tried to, air quotes, do something with the emotions, but my healing progressed the more I simply sat with them. Instead of trying to push them away, I wondered what would happen if I let them grow. They grew into my practice today. Mm, I just really felt that bio. So Madison is an incredible human practitioner that I've had the privilege of working with in the past few months. And 
during the short time that we've worked together, Madison has taught me so much and expanded my perspective. And I also feel like Madison and I have this resonance. Like the two of us seems to understand or view life through a very specific lens that I was almost like, when I met Madison, it was like, you also saw it this way you also experienced it this way and it felt really heart opening and beautiful so yeah in this conversation we spoke a lot about what it means to be a point of view to embody a very specific point of view we spoke about the connection between being an artist and our relationship with creativity and on the other side of creativity being destruction as well as healing Madison's definition of what art means. We also spent quite a bit of time talking in depth about Madison's upcoming six-month journey called Katabasis, which is going to begin in mid-September 2022. And so if you feel a resonance with Madison, I really would recommend you to check out the course page for Katabasis. And yeah, I'm really excited for you to tune into this conversation. Without further ado, this is my conversation with Madison Neese. Welcome to the podcast, Madison. Thank you for being here. I'm so glad to be here. So you and I met through our mutual friend and teacher, uh, Marika Clymer. And it's, I'm just so like amazed at the different ways that people meet each other and like the different ways that we end up connecting and working with each other. It's, it's wild. And I feel like I've really appreciated being in your presence, working one-on-one with you. And I am going to be in Katabasis. So that's something that I'm super excited about. And I cannot wait for this journey. But I'm going to kind of take us back, um, a few steps back. And, and I like to begin my conversations with just asking the person that I'm speaking to, who they feel, know, or sense themselves to be in this moment in time? Oh, that's a big question. And also another thing that I was thinking about is, of course, I'm a human body, right? Like, a, I'm a homo sapien. I'm, I, I say it all the time. I'm, I'm an animal. I like to forget that because I have a strong brain. So that's part of it. But also one of the things that I was thinking about actually when I was preparing to talk to you is that like I'm also a point of view. Mm. And that has a lot to do with radical aliveness, the modality that I, I trained for so long in or one of them is like getting really clear on the lens with which you are viewing the world. Because when I'm really clear on that lens, I'm much less likely to show up in a relationship or any dynamic with an agenda. And so I was thinking about that. I was like, oh, what would I say? So some of the things that inform me 
are that I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, where the 1921 race massacres happened. I went to the school in that neighborhood that really informed me, my life and my practice. My mother was a European uh, heroin addict, product of independent Baptist uh, preacher father. And my dad's Japanese. And so we were greatly informed by World War II and my grandmother migrating over here. Um, I also, and this is an edge, it's still an edge for me to say this, I'm, I'm queer. Growing up in Oklahoma, even in, you know, the 90s, it yeah. wasn't, like, it wasn't okay. It's still a, it's still a soft spot for me, but it's true. Um, and Yeah. I think those are some of the big pieces that I'll just kind of like place in the field because I could go and talk about my identities of work, but those seem so subsidiary to like kind of what brought me onto this planet and, and what lands birthed me and, and raised me. Right. So. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that framing of, us not just as human beings but as a point of view and i feel like you already answered my next question but i'm really curious to hear you share a little bit about how you get from growing up in tulsa oklahoma with all of the different intersections that you've mentioned into the work that you end up doing now yeah um you know so much of what I do is I, I connect threads constantly. I feel like us as artists, that's what we're so impeccable at is connecting the threads that sometimes predominant culture, they, they don't want to connect. They don't want to see, um, or maybe that it's, that they don't want, that's a broad generalization. And I, I don't really fancy those, but maybe it's difficult to see. Mm. And, um, that being said, you know, my course, this journey to the underworld, if you will, really is a reflection of my life. Growing up with a mentally ill mother, I I grew up in this underworld kind of energy, very serious. And when she passed, it was as if her, a lot of her generational trauma, I felt it transferred to my body almost instantaneously. Um, and she used a substance heroin, um, which is a derivative of the plant poppy, which is a plant spirit that we're going to be working with in ketabasis, um, that I ended up doing the same thing. I ended up using becoming an intravenous drug user in my 20s. And I knew the depths. I, I wasn't thriving there. I was barely surviving. But I, it felt comfortable to me. And so I actually, my, my family, they're very matriarchal, uh, my Japanese side. And, and my aunt was like, I do, I'm, I'm moving Madison out here, like on a whim, like I'm 21, right? Like it's a risk. Mm. <laughs> she moved me out here. And it was my first semblance of seeing like a family that talked to each other and, when something was wrong, you know, they hugged one another, like, you know, some, it was my, 
first kind of modeling of what a dynamic in a life could be. And and out here is San Diego? Yeah, California. Yeah. California. And ultimately, you know, releasing my relationship with that drug and realizing that there was a massive amount of creativity. Painting is what changed my life. My ability to move energy through paint, through song, through movement, it was so innate. And it brought me home from just basically a lifetime of feeling so fractured. And <laughs> I just was 20 something. And I was like, oh, I'm going to school. I'm going to radical liveness. I'm going to become a counselor and had all the energy that, you know, we tend to have in our early 20s. And I launched a mission, you know, I, I launched a mission that I wanted to work with people in the depths people who were artists, people who had grief and ache and anger, mm. be with them there. So that's that's what I decided to do. Yeah. Do you feel a connection between being an artist and holding space for people through that deep exploration of their own internal depths? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, I feel like to me being an artist is is meeting the moment like exactly where it's at and seeing the way that it wants to move or sing or be cooked or you know i always say skating is an art whatever your art form is we are beings that we're meant to make art you know like our even the structure of our hands and um and when I'm when I'm working with someone, the way I work is really like blank slate, meeting them exactly where they're at, and kind of like this very artistic flow that I quite enjoy. I don't think I could do it if it didn't feel like art. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I feel that. What's your what's your big three, Madison, in terms of like your birth chart? Airy Sun. Sag Moon, Aquarius Rising. I love that. Yeah. How do you relate to your to your birth chart? Do you feel do you feel a connection there? Absolutely, I do. I do. Um, you know, I will say I have like a really surface knowledge of astrology. I've always resonated with being like fiery. I have a lot of energy. Um, and Aquarius just feels like home. My North node is also in Aquarius. So it's, it's very strong in me. I feel like, so, you know, I know and I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, something I wanted to talk to you about was, um, as you know, my process in doing some of these conversations, which I think I've told you before is to almost you know, go into all the work that you've put out there and then allow them to really infuse my space and to almost mind melt with the person that I'm going to be having a conversation with. And something that I noticed in your, in how you're showing up, or at least maybe this was when I started to follow you and you came into my, my field of consciousness is um, 
I really feel your airy sun. And it's almost like there was a point where you took like the solar vitamin and you decided to show up on Instagram. <laughs> I was like in March, in airy season, I was, it was going to happen. And around then, because I got the message in the winter because I wanted to, you know, commodify and like talk about the things and get excited. And I kept hearing, wait, 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 wait. So March. Yeah. How was that experience? How has that experience been like for you? Especially, this is just something that maybe is coming out of our one-on-one sessions. Mm-hmm. I I sense from you kind of this fluency with being in a very close container with people. Like you have such a powerful, you create such a powerful container and you give so much within this close container. And as we know, Instagram is not a close container. So how has that experience been for you? Like allowing yourself to begin projecting out there? I'm not going to lie. It's been difficult for me. It's been difficult. It's been beautiful. Um, there have been some moments where I've had reflections that I don't know I would have had in other circumstances and, and, you know, like meeting you for instance, or even meeting Marika, how we know one another, like it's been so fruitful, but in terms of my internal process, I have wounds around being seen growing up and with the identities that I hold inside of me in the area of the country that I grew up in. I was not encouraged to be an artist and here I am showing up with it and you know it it feels edgy edgy (laughs) I love that I feel the the edge too and and there's a I don't know if you noticed this but there's such a such a deep generosity I feel like in terms of how you show up online because there's so much wisdom that you're sharing that I almost feel like as I'm tuning into your content and everything you're putting out there, I'm like, I need to pay Madison for this. (laughs) Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. It feels good to hear that because, you know, when we're in a more didactic relationship or even a group, right, you get to feel the response. Whereas in social media, it's it really, for me, at least I feel as though it, it reflects some of my own internal biases, difficulties back to me rather than, um, so yeah, it's been a really deep process and I'm trying to learn to play. Mm, I love that. I really love that idea of learning to play. I have found in my own journey of allowing myself to be seen in that way. Um, There also emerges like a way of being with one's audience where if you are the kind of person who wants to have feedback, it's almost like you kind of had to train and invite the feedback from others. And then you, you do get more feedback. But it is really interesting because it's largely a consumeristic platform right like it's a platform where people go in and they just consume Mm. 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 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to to speak about this um, something you wrote about how everyone is an artist, because that one really spoke to me. And I want to read you back something that you wrote, which was, <laughs> <laughs> "I believe we are all inherently artists. I believe we were born creatives, and often in life, it is the creation we unlearn, not the other way around." I believe you too are an artist, even if you've never painted on a canvas or have not created traditionally ever or in a long time. These things do not take away from the human's innate creativity that is constantly functioning within us. And you also spoke about how art brings you back into yourself. And I'm curious to hear you maybe explore or riff a little bit more about that in in what ways do you feel that art or art making or just being aware of this idea of humans as being innately creative how does that bring us back into ourselves Mm -hmm. oh my mind goes 18 ways right there so first of all i kind of want to dissect this concept of art And like, even if somebody's listening right now, and maybe we could do it here together, it's like, when we hear the word art, what images come up? What have we learned? What is our framework with which we view art? And I'll just share for me, and maybe if you wanna share, Jonathan, it's like, I'm imagining, because I I was first a painter, right? Um, And I have many modalities now, but it's like a canvas in a gallery. What do you, mm-hmm. do you have an image? Yeah, the first image that came to my mind is walking through the Met Museum and seeing these masterpieces, right? Um, something I, I feel is interesting to share here is a number of years ago, I went to the Van Gogh Museum in the Netherlands. And it was such a revelation for me because to see someone's whole body of work displayed and to see the the complexity of the different kinds of art he was making the different kinds of experimentation the different format rather than just the starry starry night was such a huge mind-blowing experience because it was like even someone that is so revered within the canon of western art is actually experimenting and is not, you know, Van Gogh, I don't think in his lifetime felt like he made it or that he, he even knew what his style was. Yeah. Yeah, right. And, you know, I'm sure his pieces are going for, I don't, I don't even know what they would be going for now, but he probably couldn't get rid of some of those. I don't know. I don't know his entire life story, admittedly, but, you know, I, I, I like to get really clear, at least for myself, what that image is, because I have run so uh, predominant, uh, most of my eight year of facilitating has been in uh, trauma and addiction treatment centers. And I ran a lot of different groups, somatic and art therapeutic based session. So those were my primary modalities, which is kind of why I work the way I do now. And I would hear, you know, just some, some person from, you know, somewhere in the United States or whatever. And they go, I, I'm not an artist. I don't make art. And I would just look at them like, you know, they've had three heads 
you know, like just to make a point, you know, cause I'm, I'm really direct. And I would be like, what are you talking about? Of course you are. Do you see your hands? Your thumbs are especially equipped to hold something in order to use a tool. A paintbrush, my friend, is a tool. Of course you're an artist. Mm. And the impact and the, and the transformation, of course, not all the time, right? That I would see, even if it were lines on a page, squiggling their anger, play an angry song and squiggle their anger, like something would shift and move and, 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 um, come alive. And so that's really informed my perception of what an artist is. Art making to me is not so much the product, right? Both of us actually thought about the product when we thought about art, but really it was the process of creating. And so for me, if I could choose another word maybe i would say creation rather than art but art is kind of this universal concept that we we understand but like we're constantly in creation and i really like that perception because in a at least you know in the western world feeling um you know disempowered feeling all of these different feelings it gives me this different energetic of like oh i'm i'm creating with this life i'm in constantly constant communion you know i talk about my plants that are in my space all the time um constant like reciprocal dance with my environment of creation and so i think about my life a bit as art is a bit of creation i love that i it makes me think of the idea that if there's creation, there's also destruction, you mm-hmm. know, and how they're part of the same cycle. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to hear, yeah, to hear what comes up for you around that. What comes up around the idea of destruction and art making and the process of of yeah living an artful life and and the the role of destruction in that oh wow wow you really took it there i did (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh i really like talking to you okay let me let me sit with that for a second The role of destruction in art making. A few things come up for me. First of all is my my own, right? Because I'm saying my own lens, my own framework of how I felt utterly destroyed when I realized that I was an artist. It felt as if I, I mean, I, I didn't want to live anymore. I'm familiar with that feeling, that hopeless state. And I just said, okay, I, I'm just gonna create from this place. And I made ugly images and images that disturbed people because it was true and it was honest. 
and I also think about the decomposing of a body, you know, after, after we die, you know, I, I often say the only thing that I know in this life is that it will end. I will mm-hmm. no longer this, this body will turn into whatever it will turn into. And I also think about how when my body decomposes, I hope, I don't, I don't want you to put me in a sterile box. I want to be consumed by other life. I want to nourish another life. And so to me, I think there is no creation without destruction, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it brings me to something I was thinking about when you asked what comes up in our minds when we bring up this idea of art because there's a way in which this civilization, this society has sterilized art making and has Mm -hmm. separated it from life. I think the commercialization of art and the, you know, putting it in the museum act of interacting with art has made it the sterile thing that divorced art itself from from the complexity from which it was born out of. Mm-hmm. When you were saying that, I was like seeing, I was looking at you, but also seeing like singing a song to the wind for no one to hear. No, in a, in a day and age where we, where I tend to record everything you know, to make it something. So it's, you know, it, it didn't happen if it wasn't caught. Um, there's a lot of potency in that and making impermanent art a stick, right? That used to be a tree. So a little bit of destruction there. Yeah. With, with making symbols or, or shapes or something in the dirt, like something happens to me, even when I do something that seemingly mundane exactly exactly and this idea of the innateness of art making and the creative process is making me also think of something that you wrote which was that somatics are innate Mm -hmm. and that really tickled me because i am not entirely i'm not super familiar with the whole lineage of radical aliveness so maybe maybe i would i would love for you to speak a little bit more on that but from my understanding somatics is a huge part of it right mm-hmm. and and i feel like we're kind of coming into this um as a collective coming into an awareness of what it means to have somatic training or to have somatic awareness of somatic intelligence and then it kind of almost becomes one more thing that we need to master right one more thing we need to conquer i i've been um i've been saying in in a couple um different places about how i have no interest in mastering astrology because astrology is not my servant and and in a sense that's kind of what I'm getting at here as well with regards to what you were saying about somatics being innate because um, 
this aggressive like drive to gain the skills of like somatic intelligence seems a little bit off centered to me like something about it doesn't feel like quite the heart of what the practice is all about so i don't know what what is coming up for you around that um i i'd love for you to expand this idea of the innateness of somatics yeah so first i want to say radical aliveness was founded by someone named ann bradney and also created in large part by another person named Nikki Angel. Um, Anne had been in her lineage of core energetics, which they have a large school in New York, where it was this kind of um, very diagnostic modality, which me working in the mental health you know, industry, everything is very di diagnostic. It's individual. We're looking within the person's life for what happened to them you know, to cause this rather than looking at structural, uh, social, societal conditions that also formed this, right? And so for me as a more, you know, I'm a collectivist nestled in an individualist culture, like that felt very natural to me. Mm. So core energetics is that, and then there's bioenergetics, which is a lot about moving energy and releasing trauma, which doesn't, so much resonate with my system like how am i going to release trauma how am i going to make that not a part of just my my lived frame and my lens i definitely want to learn to digest it but i don't know that we're going to it kind of makes me think a little bit of like purity culture how at some point we're going to ascend to some mastery where we won't have difficulty and i'm sorry it is 2022. We are in uh, like, you know, major ecological crises, um, all of these different things. Like we feel the, the shake and it's okay to feel uncomfortable for me. Yeah. So there's, that's kind of the lineage and how radical aliveness was birthed. And it was um, this modality that people came from all over the world it was not just Americans in this training, which really shaped me. And I value that a lot. And through that, because I felt really confused, radical aliveness is more like a spirit. It works in all of us who went through that training um, very, very differently. And so I was like, oh, how am I supposed to talk about this thing? How am I supposed to talk? And my teacher pointed me to um, the indigenous peoples of Australia and how they would do these shaking practices and ritual. And that was kind of how I got, I was already doing ritual practices because of my own ancestry is very ritualized Japanese and, and uh, ancient Germanic. And, um, and so I became curious uh, specifically about ritual and about song and about storytelling, how all these ancient stories were passed down, not even to now, before written language. And so that's kind of the framework with which I hold it personally, is that modernity has packaged this into the concept of this sellable, you know, realable, real making, you know, somatic, whatever, you know, not yeah. to 
it's so useful. I love it. I use it with myself and so many people, but also I don't like it being inaccessible and not feeling like, oh, I can sense into this tightness in my chest. What's it saying to me? You know, um, so all of our ancestors at some point had practices with which I guess in modernity we would call somatics, but they were just living life to them. Yeah. Wow. You're kind of exploding my mind a little bit here because it's making me think of this book that I've been reading. Um, it's actually an astrology text, but it's called, called um, Cosmos and Psyche by Rick Tarnas. It's a fabulous book, but in the in the first few chapters, which are just some of my favorite um, texts ever that exist, Rick Tarnas was really talking about this divide that um, that the modern human has created in terms of how it defines itself against the the primal way of looking at the world, as if the modern human is this invention or like this new invention that is an improvement, right? Mm. Of like draft number one. And, and something that you're saying makes me realize that not only as modern people have we taken away the inherent aliveness of the world around us and of the cosmos and of the plants and the animals, but we've also done that to ourselves. No longer is my heart space, this animate space that have that has its own intelligence, but it kind of becomes the, this dead thing now, right? Yeah. And, and we can diagnose it. And I can say that's anxiety for you or whatever, which I'm always very, I, I don't do that with who I work with. It's more about reclaiming that. Um, and our relationships are a ritual. I think about growing up in this massive Japanese family. We didn't always talk about our problems. We cooked together. We shared food. And in that way, would I call that somatics? No, but it was this way of dealing with conflict and being in relationship with a different way and communicating beyond language, which we do, we're constantly engaged in. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I really like this concept that you're bringing in about ritual. And I'm curious to hear more about what that word means to you, especially in light of the fact that you are calling katabasis a ritual. And so what does that mean? What does that word mean to you? And yeah, it, it's interesting because I think this is very much a learning um, area for me. As someone who grew up in a Christian household, this idea of ritual was very much kind of taken away or or vilified a lot. And so I I think ritual was for me kind of the 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 last frontier. You know, it there's something about that word itself that feels scary. 
And it's kind of ridiculous because I realized that, you know, me winding down before I go to bed is a ritual, right? Me taking showers twice a day, that's a ritual. But something about like how ritual also has like a ceremonial aspect to it can bring up, I think, a lot of fear both within myself and in a lot of other people. Hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and, and some might disagree and it may be called something else, but for me growing up, um, you know, in, in two worlds, if you will, the Christian world and then my, my father's family, um, Christianity was highly ritualized for me. You know, we had a certain even way that we, we dressed, to go to church, which, um, you know, clothing and things like that can be a big part of ritual. So yeah. I think that's really interesting, but it just wasn't called that. And so to me, ritual is, is about looking at um, these things that we do and bringing more intention to them, if you will. One of my teachers calls ceremony a statement of intent and a charged field. Mm. And um, I think that for me, I like to look to other species sometimes to get a clearer picture of what ritual is. Do you ever watch like nature shows or anything like that? A little bit, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of... Um, obsessed with them when I'm not actually out, um, out of my house. And cause I like to uh, learn things. And, you know, one of the things that comes up for me right now is, um, the, the rituals and birds, <laughs> like they have such profound rituals that they, they have places that they'll meet, um, you know, different dances they have ritual like the male species will usually have ritual dances where they puff feathers and different things like that um in order to like do a communicative gesture i'm ready to mate i'm i'm um elephants their death rituals that they have um we're grieving we've lost someone so it's this communicative gesture that's happening and um yeah, like even this, I kind of looked at it a bit as a ritual. Mm -hmm. You mean this conversation? Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. And um, something that's coming up for me around how conversations are ritual spaces as well is how, you know, as a podcast creator, a part of me always feels a little bit self-conscious in creating too much of a structure around conversations because I recognize that the best conversations happen outside of, of structures, right? And also at the same time, through practice, I realize that when I ask different people the same question, I get really different answers. And there's something about the act of allowing these recorded conversations to have structure, to have a place where they live is so interesting. And it's like so interesting to see what then emerges out of container. Yeah, it, it makes me think of that definition that I've been really like, I haven't even digested the full definition of what 
uh, Tini said, um, ceremony is like within a charged field. And it's like, that's what you're doing. And I can even feel it for me as a participant that I can feel the charged field. I'm saying things I wouldn't normally say if we were having a quote unquote normal conversation. So I see a lot of value in the structure and something else that I wanted to add to the conversation about ritual is that it is a little kind of amorphous to me because it's both action and it's an idea. Mm. Ritual, and this is something I was talking and thinking about yesterday, ritual has been historically a really potent vehicle of social control. And so it's interesting and kind of why I like to play with some taboo topics, you know, and then turn them on their heads and help people find their own definition. I don't, I'm not coming in with a strong definition of this is what ritual is for anybody who comes into my field. Um, But, but let's know our, the history of human ritual and also the potency and how it's also played an integral role in our evolution as a species, because it also can, it's not just social control. It can also help a group of peoples identify values, commonalities, develop harmony, create from that place. Our whole, something I think about a lot is, you know, the first people who use tools in certain ways, you know, even sticks or something to create a fire, like that was creativity. Something that we in modernity find so incredibly mundane was a massive, amazing, like creative act that changed our evolution as a species. Yeah, exactly. I'm getting heated now. Wow. I love that. I really love that idea of finding creativity in the ways that we use different tools every day. It makes me think of even, you know, in the perhaps non-preferred world for some of us of technology, how this idea of creating different apps, you know, is a very intelligent way of bridging that gap between innate creativity and ritual Mm. what comes up for me is um (laughs) i had been thinking about this idea i'm sure this app exists out there but i just haven't found a great one which is you know an app where you can find a bathroom to use in new york city because it's a real problem you know of like walking around and not being able to find bathrooms and especially after um you know the pandemic not that the pandemic is over but since that particular world is introduced to us a lot of places have closed down and 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 landscapes have really changed and and i'm curious to see you know little things like that um being resurrected you know like what does it mean now for us to create um apps that help people navigate this new landscape yeah. it doesn't have to be bathrooms you know it can be some other things as well but but um putting it in a format that is 
that is accessible. And what is more ritualistic than picking up our phones, right? For us living in 2022. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in a way it's an extension of some of us and, you know, I, as like the relationship between me and social media is quite interesting. I I was actually reflecting on it. I made my first website I'm dating myself right now, Zanga. I had a Zanga um, and I made my first, I did like, uh, you know, code and like, you know, edited it and stuff and made it uniquely mine when I was 13. Like, it's not this kind of like foreign landscape for me. And I went through some really massive chronic health issues in 2020 and, and, it was a lifeline for me. It was a lifeline socially when I like physically could not leave my house. I felt so terrible. It made contact accessible. And I've, I still have relationships from that time that I really, really cherish. So I'm not the, the personally for me, to bedevil some of the products of modernity. Do I think, <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of criticisms, but there's also some some real, um, I've, I've felt benefit in my own life, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I wanna talk about this upcoming course for you. Um, I, I didn't even realize when I when I revisited your uh, course page, you had uploaded a video, mm-hmm. um, and and it was such a beautiful video. I'm gonna have the link in the show notes so everyone can check it out. But I'm I'm I want to hear more about um, what this course means to you. First of all, like maybe maybe let's talk about this word uh, katabasis. Yes. Where did that come from? And what does that mean for you? Mm. So there's a couple answers to that. Um, I, I had wanted to do something. I was chronically ill from running groups in these trauma and addiction treatment centers. Like literally it was, it was making me physically, emotionally, all kinds of things were happening for me. And I was like, oh, I have to get out. I'm never the type to to make a quick move. I want to make sure that it's deeply rooted. And I know why, mm-hmm. because I, 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 what I am is a point of view. I want to be really clear about why I'm creating something and not just putting it out because I, I need to make money or something. And so I waited. And I was like, why, why am I going through this again? I felt like I was in the underworld again. I went in my 20s and here I am turning 30 and I was in a car wreck and I could barely move and, and I was in pain in all the ways. And so I heard the word catabasis one time I was outside and I was like, catabasis, like, what, what is that? That's weird. And, um, and I, I looked it up. And, you know, I, I have had a very close relationship with the deity Hakate. She's best known for her uh, prevalence in Greek mythology. However, 
she has had many names. She's like a goddess with many, many names all over Turkey, um, all over the Middle East. They still have temples to her in Turkey um, that still exist. So she is far beyond um, Greek mythology, in my opinion, and my research. And so, um, you know, this myth came up for me of when Persephone was pulled to the underworld and ate the pomegranate seed, she was the one standing at the gates to hell. And so she was the one that could tell um, Demeter, I actually know where your daughter is. And Hecate is the guardian of the crossroads. She takes people from this world to the other. And mm. growing up Christian, I was very scared of the underworld. Um, but it's just another world, just like this one. And, um, and so I became inspired by that. I was like, there's this deity I've been working with for a very, very long time. And, and perhaps I could be a similar guide to that which we have been taught by modernity to fear. Yet my guess is no matter where we're from, our ancestors worked with darker, deeper energies. So there's so much potent information to be reclaimed there. And this is not a group that's based in one kind of mythological point of view. This is mine. We get to come from all different types of ancestries, all different parts of the world. And it's going to be a container where we get to be held as we find our way and our own meaning of what this is. And um, yeah, so so that's a, a bit about the word. So, you know, catabasis is a journey to the underworld. You know, there's the hero's journey, which is like, yes, I succeed. And now I bring it back to my life. This is, uh, I, I don't want to be binary here because I'm not into that. But for simplicity's sake, it's the opposite. We're going down into the underworld and emerging um, in spring to bring this wisdom that we found in the depths into our lives, into our leadership and whatever we do, whether you're a teacher, whether you, um, you know, sell homes, like we have the ability, we don't have to be quote unquote healers or coaches or something to make an impact in, in our ritual relationships, you know, wherever we are. So it is a leadership program of sorts. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear you talk more about what that means to you, leadership program. Mm -hmm. That feels, you know, something that was coming up for me as I was hearing that was um, Hekati and, and this really interesting triangle right between Hecate, Demeter and Persephone mm -hmm. and how they all embody different stages of going down into the underworld like there is the grieving process that Demeter is embodying within that mythology right there is perhaps the confused the unnamed Persephone like in a lot of the different myths Persephone was literally just referred to as Kore, which is the, the girl, right? Just the maiden. And then there's Hecate, which is this psychopomp. 
you know, this, this person who is able to kind of be, you know, in different places and facilitating different kinds of passage way and, and how, yeah, the idea of leadership to me has been sold as maybe just one version of that. And that's kind of what's coming up for me as I hear you say the words that this is a leadership program. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I am, I do reference a lot in my work, uh, what I don't want. <laughs> I've learned a lot of what I don't want to be, mm-hmm. what I observe to happen, especially in these centers um, where you are given a diagnosis, you are told that if you're going to succeed, you're going to do it this way. And, you know, I, I didn't see a lot of success. In fact, I saw a lot of death. And I think because of that, I, I call it a leadership program because there can be a tendency when you're coming into someone's space to uh, almost give your power over to this person as a teacher, as a leader. And so from the gate, I want to establish that, as Anne says, I don't want you to come to my house. Like, I I don't want you to make a home in my house. I want you to find your own. I want you to build your own. And so leadership doesn't mean we're going to like change our entire lives and start leading, you know, in this like uh, above everyone else way. It's more, uh, it's more subtle than that to me, I guess is what I'm saying. It's, it's feeling a part of your life, feeling your inherent contribution and extraction from all of life. And being able to be with those places, I guess. Yeah. I'm hearing this thread around um, claiming ownership and mm-hmm. claiming space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because in recent years, I feel like there has been a lot of conversation around facilitators kind of decentering themselves. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. And also, when you just kind of take that idea and run with it in your own lives, this idea of decentering feels really weird to me because how can you really take ownership of your role within the ecosystem if you are consistently focused on decentering yourself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I hear you. That, that, that does make sense to me. And it's something to chew on for sure. For me, I guess because of radical aliveness already having a framework where we we utilize ourselves as self as instrument, right? So I'm an instrument with a frame. And I'm always coming into every space equipped within my own lineage, this concept of non-expert model. That languaging for me sits in my system a lot better, although I am leading. I, I need to acknowledge my power here as a leader, Yeah. right? That's right use of power. Um, I also will hold it knowing that 
I am not an expert of you. You contain multitudes, universes inside of universes. How could I know everything and put a label to your symptoms and say that thing in your chest is this? And it came from your mom, which I've seen happen all, all over, you know? So to me, it's about wielding this power that I know I have. And I'm willing to stand in my wisdom. It's not mm-hmm. negating those things. It's just learning to be in relationship with it and I guess use it wisely and being open to feedback. That's also about me as a leader, creating safety within my containers where you can bring conflict to me. Yeah. If I say something, if if we're doing something and it doesn't feel right, let's go there. That's, that's leadership, learning to be in your authority to authority. Mm. Yeah. Is there a reason why you feel like a journey to the underworld is exciting or timely in this moment in time? Yeah, I do. I do. I... I'm trying to figure out the way to say this without um, throwing shade. It's not my intention, but a lot of the rhetoric is um, soft and sweet and nice and pleasant and pleasurable. I do believe that's part of the equation, but there's also nitty gritty, deep and dirty, you know? And for me, it's about being with that full range, the modern human because of marketing, um, we tend to really see happiness and joyfulness as the goal. And so in a way, it's also my um, little activism bit against that kind of materialist concept that says that I need to do the somatic exercise so I feel better. Mm. Uh, Why? What if we learn to dance there and create from that place? It's such a place with so much wisdom. And the reality, too, is that people are not well. A lot of people are not well. And going into those places as leaders helps us also support our communities there and other people there. So it it echoes out without us having to try in this way. And it, and it helps, at least for me, build my tolerance to being with what is actually happening in the world rather than having to turn away from it. Mm -hmm. I love that. I'm curious if you feel like sharing a little bit about the structure of catharsis. (laughs) Yeah. Because when I first heard it, I was like, this is such a delicious structure. (laughs) (laughs) Take me there. Yes. So, you know, we're going to be passing through seven different gates. Um, I don't have the gates on me right now, but there's um, connection to land is the first gate. The second one is ancestral gate and myth. We'll be doing a lot of research about um, our own ancestral myths, right? Um, And embodiment practices, ritual, things like that. It's really potent to be able to do that kind of work and then have a space to come back and process what you find and be with it. So going through these seven gates, 
emerging in spring um, on spring equinox um, into the topside world and connecting to the world soul. And how we're going to get there is each month, the first week of the month, we're going to have a ritual. And the second week of the month, we're going to be releasing, I'll be releasing some kind of content, food for thought. Um, I have different things planned. And then the third week of the month, we're going to have a radical aliveness process session, which a lot of the things we were just saying, right? Being with conflict, being with what is really present, not just individually, but also if they're systemic things happening in the world, we're going to be with that in community. Mm. Uh, Learn some skill there learn some embodied skill around relational concepts. That's really what um, radical aliveness is. It's not all about feeling good or making the group happy and and peaceful. And then the fourth week of the month is um, integration. I think this is really important because that's part of why I decided to do a longer journey is I want the integration to happen in our group field rather than, oh my God, I go into this deep experience and now I need to integrate for like four freaking months by myself. So that's really kind of where I feel at least that a lot of the deepening will happen is in that week of seeming nothingness on the surface is probably when the deepest kind of you know, cauldron bubbles will be kind of percolating. And so we'll kind of be going through that for six months, that that model. Yeah. I like that idea of integration because the the image that's coming up for me is um, like a frog burping, you know? (laughs) It's like there's something in that act of, allowing digestion to happen that feels so so exciting and and I have taken so many courses in my adult life where it's almost like to me it almost perpetuates this um, myth that is imparted to us by educational systems where essentially the process of learning, the the learning model that we are given is like, read everything from the textbook, apply it in some sort of way or regurgitate it in an exam, and then you pass, right? When actually that to me is only maybe even less than half the battle. Like the real work begins in trying to figure out how to have a relationship with this body of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is really, it's going to be whatever it needs to be. You know, I have a structure in my head, but ultimately the bodies that show up are really going to inform it. And I'm not just this kind of like leader with my own ideals. Like we're, we're going to be in this together. So that for me feels exciting. And I wanted it also because it is an underworld winter journey to not be the most taxing in terms of time. That's why I decided two meetings a month, as opposed to like every week we're going to meet and it's going to be this super quick and fast and, um, you know, 
thing um, is because this is also a time for, for slowing and deepening. And I'm excited to see where it's going to take us because so much of my own magical practice, of course, I have some traditional training and information and it's informed by my ancestry, but is my art practice. So who I, who is coming so far are people who really are in alignment with this conversation about um, art being innate, somatics being innate, um, art also being a magical practice, a creative practice. So it feels exciting to me. Yeah, I can't wait. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of ancestry that you've brought up a number of times. Um, I'm curious to hear you riff or muse or ponder about this idea of why it's important for us to um, be in relationship with our ancestors, however you define the word, and mm -hmm. more specifically, connecting that to our spiritual lives. Yeah. You know, for me, it's felt appropriate up until now to have uh, certain spiritual practices that are in my ancestry. Of course, you know, I'm living in San Diego, California, where, you know, every botanical I go to is Santeria. So that also, like, is in my practice. Lots of candle magic, votive candles, that kind of thing. So by no means am I saying, like, oh, only operate within your lineage because, you know, in a way, we, we are all humans, you know? It's about the reverence and respect and the way that I engage with those practices, I'm not going out and saying, oh, now I'm, I'm doing Santeria, right? That would be um, just not, not something that would feel resonant for my system. Yeah. But, you know, to me, ancestors are already kind of present in my lived experience. They inform how I inhabit my body, my, my grandmother, my great-grandmother's experiences. I'm not, I am going to admit I'm shifting a little bit of my cosmology around it because I also don't want to let that my ancestors who may or may not be well have free reign in my system. Mm. So there is an uh, element of, of boundaries here that I didn't used to have that is starting to develop for me in, in this new and exciting way where I am also realizing I honor my ancestors, but also my life is mine. Yeah. So ancestor reverence is a very big concept to me, but also something that you and I have talked about I also see this pine tree outside of my house. It existed long before I, I was on this planet. And I consider it my ancestor. This land is an ancestor. You know, technically my home was built before me. My home is an entity that I am in deep and intimate communion, communion and relationship with. So I do have a broader perspective rather than just this humanistic view of ancestor because that's how I hold everything anyway. Yeah, I love that. I feel your um, Aquarius rising kind of 
coming up in that beautiful reflection because Aquarius is a sign that is traditionally ruled by Saturn. And as we know, Saturn speaks to tradition. Saturn speaks to that which comes before us. And also Saturn rules both Capricorn and Aquarius, right? And to me, the Capricorn face of Saturn is focused on really learning this idea of what tradition means Mm -hmm. and really maybe even applying one's own life into this framework of that which came before us, right? But the Saturn in, in Aquarius is much more about how do we learn all the rules so we know which ones to break? <laughs> that is so true. I love that. Yeah. The word that was coming up for me was like, you know, my, my personal practices and my personal perspective is a little more emergent. Like it's, so it's kind of, it's alive. Like it's an entity and I'm really open to it shifting. I'm not uh, like, it's not this static kind of like set of rules. Like maybe I grew up with it is, it is this entity. I breathe life into it. It breathes life into me. I love that. I love that so much. So, you know, I can talk to you forever, Madison, but I want to wind us to a close. So um, what are the different ways that people can find you and can work with you? Yeah. So um, my Instagram is ritual underscore body. I have a website that's madisonneese.com. I'm sure we'll link all that. But, you know, right now I'm really focusing on catabasis. I want to welcome the beings that feel called to this journey. It feels really, really important to me. There's already a group field that I've created that is a part of the group field that we're feeling now that I just want to acknowledge for anyone who's listening, if they want to tap into that. And, you know, I'm doing something called flirting with the mystery sessions where anyone for the month of August and going into September can schedule a free 45 minute um, mystery session with me where we're, we're going to go where we go just to feel each other's vibe. Um, It's a big part of my mission. And it also helps me get really clear on, on what I'm doing. They've been so affirming for me, honestly, I love doing them. So anyone listening to this, I want to offer you, invite you to schedule a session with me and let's meet and chat. Um, because right now, Katabasis is the main way to work with me. I am also, I believe, I, I don't know when this is coming out, but on, I believe, the um, 18th, I'm having a pleasure ritual, which will be very exciting as well. And that's just for people, like kind of welcoming people into this kind of emergent ritual practice that I'm doing. Um, And more will be revealed from there. You know, I'm in an intimate relationship with ritual body. And I feel like it's kind of telling me and informing me of what the next steps are so i don't know beyond that it feels kind of fucking liberating to say (laughs) (laughs) so exciting i love it um okay so the last question that i always ask 
anyone um, who came onto this podcast is this phrase, healing the spirit. I'm curious what is coming up for you. What do you perceive to be the opportunities or the challenge or anything you want to speak to when I share that phrase with you? I will just share that it feels exciting to me and it feels like an opportunity because we all have different definitions of what healing means. And I think that's important, at least for me, to get clarity. Like, what does that look like? What does that taste like? What does that smell like with all my senses to, to be healing? And... You know, I love also thinking about the word spirit. It's like the, it makes me think of the concept of Kami, which is the force animating all things and running through all things, even this chair that modernity would say is, you know, benign or not living, like as a spirit. And so really, I, I don't have a solid answer. Like for a lot of things, I have more questions and more things that I hope people would sit with and be excited by. But for me, healing my spirit looks like cooking white rice and feeding my ancestors on a Sunday, lighting a candle before I have a call, meeting with another body, pulling a room to help give me guidance for that day, feeling free and safe enough to put on a song and move as oddly as I choose and as animalistic as I can bear. That's what healing the spirit looks like to me. Uh, could not end with a better answer. Thank you, Madison. Thank you. I really <laughs> love speaking with you. <laughs> That is my conversation with Madison. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, that you found something helpful, insightful, nourishing from our conversation. I hope that some aha moments were made. And if you are interested in working with Madison, all of the links will be in the show notes below. I highly recommend that you check out Madison's upcoming course, Katabasis. And yeah, Find a way to work with Madison because Madison is an incredible human, an incredible practitioner. I could not recommend Madison's work enough. If you found this podcast or this conversation to be nourishing, to be helpful to you in some way, I would love it if you could subscribe, rate, or review this podcast with five stars or whatever is the highest ranking on your podcast app. If you feel like someone else will benefit from this episode, feel free to share with them too. And yeah, until next time, I hope you take good care of yourself and I'm sending you so much love. Thank you for listening.